I probably spent a third of my time working with early stage companies, a third of my time angel investing, and a third of my time to really connecting more deeply within the ecosystem at large. And lately, that's been all about student entrepreneurs. Zach here from Boston Speaks Up. That was the voice of David Chang, today's guest. You are all in for a treat. David is a prolific startup growth agent out of Boston. He's invested in 60 plus startups. He's been an operator at at least six companies. Just a wealth of knowledge, just an awesome dude. I'm really excited to have connected with him and and to get to share this conversation with the community. Please enjoy and we appreciate your time. Cheers. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with David Chang, the well-known entrepreneur and angel investor in Boston. David, how are you today? I'm doing great. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I have heard so many wonderful things about you, and we've only recently connected thanks to our mutual friend, Jason Burke, who we have had on the Boston Speaks Up podcast. Uh, shout out to Jason for the, for the connection. I appreciate the connection. And, um, and I, I think it's going to be really wonderful to kind of go back in time and, and talk about your unique sort of career trajectory, which, you know, at one point in time, wasn't necessarily uh, angling towards, you know, tech and startups and innovation. And, and now here you are, you know, having, been in operating roles at six startups and invested in over 60 companies. And you want to sort of the chief orchestrators of, of TBD angels, which is a group I'm familiar with, you know, through friends like you know, Jason Burke and Doug Hurd. And I've, I've, I've helped bring a few, few folks into that group. And I think you guys have grown from, you know, 10, 12 to well over a hundred uh, angels just in the past year. And, and, and just seems like really, um, really amazing model. And if people haven't seen it, there's a good article recently in Boston about, about the TBD angels model. And you can see, um, you know, David quoted and sort of interviewed in that, in that article, um, speaking with Rowan Walrath from Boston. Um, so David, like just at a, you know, a top line and kind of for listeners and maybe folks that aren't as familiar with you, could you sort of paint the picture like broad strokes of what you're, how you're keeping busy today and you know, how you like to sort of introduce yourself to sort of to the you know, broader uh, Boston community. Thanks for having me. First of all, the um, it's difficult for me to answer what I do today because I don't do a single thing. A couple of years back, Diane Hessen, a uh, fantastic mover shaker in the Boston area, Describe this lifestyle as a portfolio lifestyle, and that term really nailed it for me. And so I'd say I probably spent a third of my time working with early stage companies, a third of my time angel investing, and a third of my time 
to really connecting more deeply within the ecosystem at large. And lately, that's been all about student entrepreneurs. And so, you know, when I go to an event, when we used to go to a lot of events, it would be really hard for me to say, like, what do you do? And, and I often didn't have a clean answer to that. And so, um, it's the tough thing when you when you get your hands involved in so many different things, but um, but it's all been it's all been great. Like you just meet so many great people through this whole process, and, and I'm glad to be able to do what I do. Very cool. Um, so let's talk about like where it all started. So you you were actually born overseas. You were born I was. In, in Taiwan. Uh, do you, do you do you recall that? I think you were a few years old when you moved to the states. But uh, do you have family back in Taiwan? And can you talk about sort of your your Taiwanese roots? Yeah, we, so we moved to the country, to the U.S., to New York when I was around three years old. And I have no memories of growing up until my very first memory in life was actually at the hospital when my sister was born in New York. And I guess I was around three, just a little over three years old then. And um, the distinct memory I have of just being alone in the waiting room which I don't know who's leaving a three-year-old alone in a waiting room, but there was a green couch and, and that green couch is just in my memory. And so that's when all of my memories really start. And, uh, and so I, I don't recall much from, from before then. And so I think about like just growing up, it's primarily been in a suburb of Long Island. And so I, I guess I'm more of a New Yorker than anything else. Interesting. And was that your only sibling? Do you have several siblings? I have one sibling. She's three years younger than me. We actually went to the same college. Uh, it, it just like, what, what was your, did you have a nickname in college? Uh, people call me Z money. Okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> For whatever reason, and was it something that was given to you or was it something that you had asked people to call you? I hustled a bunch of jobs and like, <laughs> I, I, I was like kind of entrepreneurial. And so people just call me, I, I think that's why they called me Z money or maybe because my last name was S, but a couple of women I was friends with freshman year just named me that. And it just sort of stuck. There, there you go. And so for my sister and I, we went to the same college and for whatever reason, our nickname, both nicknames were Changer. And I guess it's not all that creative, right? It's our last name, but hadn't actually realized that until my senior year at Cornell when she was a freshman there, where we were walking by a bunch of my friends and they're like, Hey, Changer. And we both turned around. I'm like, wait, that's what they call you? I'm like, that's what they call me. And I hadn't realized until that point that like, 80 to 90 percent of people called me that but i never even really registered and so that's that's my uh, that's my one sibling that um that i grew up with amazing so like you could have before senior year been walking around campus and people could have been like oh that dude changer's the man and you would have just walked right by having no idea that they were like giving you <laughs> singing your praises yeah i was just like yeah, who, is, who is this guy but yeah, this uh, is changer yeah, i gotta meet this guy he sounds awesome I, Oh, nicknames, nicknames come up, but, uh, but yeah, so my, my sister's pretty influential in my life, right? So first memory of life and then later on in college and, um, you know, most of my childhood was, was growing up on Long Island, first Flushing and then, uh, Dick Hills and, and so it was the suburban Long Island and, uh, mostly it was trying to, trying to fit in with everyone else. Right on. You know, it's. I can't help myself, but comment on the green couch because I have so many friends whose like earliest memories of like are related to couches. And one of my buddies actually Furniture. spent, 
yeah, yeah. He spent time in therapy and his therapist told him like furniture is like super, like it's one of the vivid kind of early things that will stick out for people and they'll like attach like certain um, memories. There's this whole psychoanalysis to do around like, you know, the furniture in your life early on and then how that manifests in certain feelings towards furniture in your relationships when you're <laughs> older. It's like, <laughs> we'll save that for over drinks. I don't think that's a fun podcast discussion, but it's real. It's, it's not surprising to me that the green couch is like what you held on to as sort of comfort, um, in that moment during the chaos of the birth of your, um, must have been of your sister. happening there. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Um, speaking of fascinating, uh, we were doing the pre-podcast Q and a, and I love asking folks like, what's the first career you remember wanting to pursue? And you had the childhood dream of being an astronomer. I mean, and yeah. did you have like a, like my brother did too. And, and like, he had like the telescope and like, were, were you, like, Oh yeah. how did that manifest? And like, was that like what you and your buddies, you know, your friends would do growing up? Would you like, you know, look up into the cosmos? For, for the most part, like in the early days, a lot of the, um, a lot of people that I grew up with ended up wanting to be like astronauts, right? That's like sort of a typical, you know, childhood dream. But um, on on my side, it was it was about space. I was probably influenced by like Cosmos. There was a whole bunch of other like um, stuff on TV that over time sort of just worked its way into my head, and uh, and that was the thing that just stuck. And so for the most part, growing up, I I wanted to be, uh, I guess, Carl Sagan, right? Who actually is another New Yorker, and so um, mm-hmm. and so that was the thing that kind of just re- I remember for being such like the the dream for so long. Cool. So so that was the dream for a while, and then talk about your accidental sort of entrepreneurship career developing? Like when did that first develop and and when did you start to get sort of that first itch? Was it before you went to Cornell? Was it at Cornell? Yeah. I kind of think of myself as an accidental entrepreneur, right? You have these classic prototypes of people who always have always known that they wanted to start a company, like do their own thing, be their own bosses. And I don't really think that was me. I, um, I got a little bit of a flavor for this, I guess somewhat early on, I think I was like maybe 14 or 15 years old, which I guess I don't know, technically you could be working at that point, but I was a, a graphic designer. And so I was using some, some software to create like brochures and this is when resumes were hard to hard to do. And so that was sort of my first intro to technology. And, um, and that same person that I ended up working for at this like print shop encouraged me to start a consulting company when I was in college. And most of it was just like, um, a vehicle for which that I could use to develop software, but it ended up being like me and my own business. And I had, you know, had to do my own taxes. Uh, and so that was some great experiences just going into college and, uh, and coming out of school. I, I didn't think I wanted to do more of that. And so I ended up at a big company and kind of took that path. And then it took many years to kind of circle back around to, to start a plan. And so I, I don't think of myself as the classic entrepreneur. I'm probably more of like an operator, mm-hmm. um, good partner to other folks. But I think, you know, regardless of, of who you are uh, and what your core skills are, I think there's so many different ways 
to be entrepreneurial. And that's been just a ton of fun seeing how other people within Boston are, you know, glom onto different things. And so, um, so it's been, it's been awesome from my standpoint, just to just work with so many different kinds of people. Nice. I want to talk about all the different sorts of people you, you work with, but I'm curious, like from your more, you know, there's different types of entrepreneurs and you're more the operator type. Like, where do you draw that from? Like, what, you know, what did your parents do for work and like, what was their sort of influence on you as you sort of, you know, matured into a, you know, a young, a young adult sort of. Yeah. Oh, Cornell. yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. I have not. I have not thought about that. My uh, my parents were actually entrepreneurs, and it didn't even really kind of register until you just mentioned it just now. Um, my my dad was an accountant, and then um, my mom had was uh, had done some work as a translator, and so she had done a handful of things. And they ultimately opened up a few different restaurants with a couple of Chinese restaurants on, on Long Island. And it was a mix of like a handful of things. So there's like retail, uh, they invested in real estate. Uh, they took some of their original skills from like bigger companies and applied them. And so seeing what they went through, it wasn't so much like, Hey, I wanted to do what they were doing. If anything, it was just gave me that exposure, but, um, took, I guess, many years to get to the point where I realized that some of what they were doing, were things that I would ultimately want to do. And, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm sure they've had some decent influence in terms of you know, from where, where I ended up, but I hadn't, hadn't really thought about it until, nice. until you just mentioned it. Well, there you go. We worked them in. Or how are your, both your, both your parents doing well today? How are they doing? Uh, my, my dad passed away many, many okay. years ago. Uh, but my mom is the, uh, epitome of, of just, just amazingly super active. She is a role model for so many, so many people. She's got a vibrant social network. She is absolutely independent. She thrives. Um, as a slight aside, a, a little bit of a funny thing is I had visited her a couple of years back and like drove down from Boston to New York to hang with her for a little bit. And I figured, oh, you know, I'd want to spend a lot of time with her. As soon as I got home, her house there's a note on the refrigerator hey help yourself to this thing i'm out with friends i was like all right okay so, that's I'll great just, i'll just wait here and so that that gives you a little bit of insight in terms of her personality but she's nice wonderful. well that's great and we worked her into the pod now she's i mean i'm sure she'll she may want to listen she's proud of her son but uh but <laughs> shout out to mama chang she sounds like a she, i mean maybe maybe you know maybe for the you know those out there looking to if you just moved to New York, you know, I don't know if she's still in the Long Island area. You need, you need a yeah. socialite to plug you into the scene. It sounds like, uh, you gotta, you gotta get yourself set up with David's mom. She's a connector. Yep. For sure. <laughs> nice. Well, from, from one connector to the next. So, so David, like, t- you know, take, you know, take me through, cause this is the first time we're getting a chance to connect live. Like what, you know, post Cornell, you know, what, what was sort of the, the job, what the job market looked like, what were your, you know, intentions at that moment? And yeah, what, what um, year was it? And like, and, and sort of how did you kind of navigate those seas? It was, I'll date myself, um, but that's, that's fine. I'm not embarrassed of my age, but I'm, um, I'm a class of 92 from, from Cornell. So that would make me 50. Uh, and so when I graduated from college, it was, you know, an okay time in, in the economy. It was sort of ups and downs. And um, it turned out that I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so during senior year, I interviewed with, I believe, 40 companies on campus. Wow. 
and got 38 rejections. And we had posted out in my room, every time you got a rejection letter, you just posted on the wall. So I had this like wall of 38 rejections out, out up on the wall. And, um, and you know, wasn't really, wasn't really sure uh, what I ultimately wanted to do and ended up with two great offers at two very different places. So one was to join as a business analyst at Oracle on the West Coast and the other one was to join as like a technology uh, software engineer at Goldman on the East Coast and on oh, on the East Coast guy, and so I ended up staying on the East Coast. But um, it took, yeah, it was a little a little unnerving going through that whole process. Interesting. We just had um, Carly Chase, um, who wears a bunch of different hats at MIT. Oh, yeah. She's at the Martin Trust Center. Yeah, and she, she, her first job out of school, and no, so, so she, you know, she was like a decade behind you. So it was like the two thousands. But she, she also started out at Goldman Sachs, and she was explaining that you know at the time, and certainly in the nineties, you could like you could say this too. But she's like, even in the two thousands, it wasn't like the fangs hadn't arrived, like Facebook, Amazon, right. Netflix, Google. So like you know, a job at Goldman Sachs was actually, you know, that, that brand sort of globally, um, was, was, was one of the sexier to sort of like start your career. I mean, would you say that was the case in, in 92 at Goldman and, and, and like, it was, was Oracle more of a like disruptor at the time? Like I'm trying, like, I, I don't, I'm trying to, yeah, no, I know this is, this is, this is pressing your, your memory quite a bit. Like, what <laughs> were you were you born at that point? Like <laughs> I was, I was oh. playing a lot of soccer, a lot of youth soccer. Okay. In the 90s. All right. <laughs> the, um, it, it, it was, and, and, and don't get me wrong. Like they were wonderful choices to have. Right. And for me, right. maybe a lesson of just how, how un unfiltered I was with just trying to meet companies. Right. And so I was just signing for any old interview. Intel actually came on campus. And I remember this one particular interview really well because it only lasted five minutes where I walk in, the interviewer talks a little bit about Intel. I start saying a little bit of myself and within five minutes, we're both like, you know what, this is a mistake. Why don't we just end it right here? And, and, and it was, yeah, it was the right. It was like speed. It, 25 it, minutes it was speed dating. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> very much. And so that was that ended up on a, as a rejection letter. Right. So um, the the two choices were were fantastic. Oracle was super attractive. Uh, they flew me out during spring break to get a better sense of the company. I was very tempted, right? It was just a lot yeah. of this stuff that was happening there. And a similar sort of thing with with Goldman. And um, and for for me, it was probably more like a location choice than anything else. Like I right. always had at the time wanted to do something with tech and also with business and they were, you know, you took the industry and the function kind of flip it a little bit, but both of them had those elements. And so they were, you know, they were, they were great options to have. And, um, my, my joining of this larger company, uh, maybe dovetails well into why I don't really consider myself like the classic entrepreneur, the disruptor, like I joined a pretty big company, right? Like right. we weren't public then, but it was, I don't know, probably three or 4,000 people. Like it was a large, large organization and, and it had a brand and it had a you know, certain safety net to joining. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so it was just, it was, someone had said this to me somewhat recently where it, it really struck me as like, as, as entrepreneurs, you, you try to do things that are, are risky that haven't been done before. And, and you have to be comfortable with that. Yet many of the founders and entrepreneurs that we know, have these backgrounds and experiences that are probably the least risky paths that they could have taken. And that was probably me, right? I went to, you know, I went to school, went to, 
get a job at, you know, a well-known uh, company. Uh, I went to HBS for business school. Like, you know, these are all things that just like, you know, they're, they go on a resume and they de-risk like, oh, you know, this guy may know what to talk about or maybe not. Yeah. But those were things <laughs> that you could draw some comfort in. And, and, um, and so it all, you know, it took me many, many years to, to get comfortable with not having those things, right? And so maybe this is the, the logical outcome of all that now is I have no company that I'm associated with. And so there's no brand. And so I just kind of have to be comfortable on my own. And I guess it's taken me 50 years to get comfortable with that. It's interesting. The, um, in this, in this part of our conversation, it's sort of the, the institutions, big sort of safety net institutions like Cornell, and then sort of going on to Goldman Sachs, they've sort of replaced the green couch in your life. Mm-hmm. And bringing yeah, these, bringing that new comfort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm, I, don't put it past me to bring up the green couch two or three more times. Um, I'm on a green couch. <laughs> no, don't worry. So, so moving, so like what, so I, I, I've seen, I have very many people in my life. I certainly in my, in sort of the agency world that I came up in, I was very lucky to start at Schwartz Communications when it was in its heyday as one of the you know biggest sort of tech PR shops in the in North America, and there was hundreds of people in the Waltham office. And so, you you learn you just there's so much more you can learn in a shorter amount of time. Um, there's certainly a safety net, but also I think within that safety net, there's a lot of extra time, attention, and care to like teaching people the right way. I can't emphasize that enough. Right. And then sort of smaller businesses have to cut corners and people wear different hats and you learn on the fly. And there's like, I I would argue, like if I could pick, I would do my career exactly the same again. I'd work at big companies, learn things the right way. And then identify all the ways that I could do them faster. And, but with the understanding of like what the right, what the right way to do something. Right. And so I'm curious, like, it sounds like you relate to that. And and so like, what was it that you, did you have like a moment, you know, what drove you to Harvard business school? And like, what was sort of the, what was your goal in sort of like, you know, evolving beyond and out of like the start of your career at Goldman? Um, I don't know if I had a specific driver and something you said really resonated with me particularly with other people that I chat with these days, that they try to figure out, do they join a small company and do more or do they join a big one and get more of the network and the and learnings? And oh yeah. I yeah. Comment that, on that, please. Yeah. I, I think that's actually yeah. a much more yeah. relevant yeah. Um, yeah. piece to, to, to the discussion where I do get that question a lot from, from people and there was one, I guess, a visual analogy that really helped for, for me. And this was during some career discussion, I think, in business school, where they were describing all the different paths that people could take. And if you picture yourself in the middle of these concentric circles, and, and time is T0 is where you are right now. And so mm-hmm. at that moment, you can take steps in any direction. And, and if you picture one path as... I'm going to, just as an example, if you're going to be a software engineer and you want to work at a startup, um, there's one path, right? And so you kind of go in that direction. And then there's a, there's a, a totally other path where you could do something different, but at a bigger company. And, and people often don't know, like, do I do the small thing first or the big thing first? And they're not really sure. And turns out, unless you have a very strong aversion to one of those two, 
would probably be fine either way. And I know it's kind of a, a cop out sort of answer to give people when they're looking for guidance, but the, the way that I've seen it work and, and the way I encourage people to think about it is that at any given time, if you're genuinely open and uncertain of, of the options and you're open to both, that at any given time, one or two of those things is going to be more attractive at a certain point in time, right? And yep. so it's mid-February right now. Um, maybe the startup thing is more appealing because you just talked to someone and there's an opportunity that opened up. And then maybe a month from now, that window closed and then a, a different one happened on the other side. And and so whenever you pull the trigger, it's going to depend on which side of the scale happens to be heavier at that point. And so, so you have to optimize for it. And now, of course, if you just know you don't want to do one thing, then save yourself the trouble and just cross that off the list. But I, I see that balance happen a lot. And going back to that <clears throat> concentric circle analogy, the, the first step that you take, it's really easy to traverse that ring and so if the rings are years like if you go one year two years three year rings out for you to traverse uh, along the circumference of that ring to another career and so to be tangible you know in my case it was software engineer at a big company traveled in that direction for a little while then a product manager at a software company uh, at a startup and so traveled that for a little while and then you know kind of did other things and it could have very well done the reverse path right we could have done some business type function at a at a, at a you know, startup, right? And and then ultimately end up at a bigger company. And so there, there's all these different ways to get to that point. And the thing about the circles to note is that if you travel t- for 20 years on one path, then it's really hard to traverse that circumference of that 20-year circle to do something very different, right? Because it's just that much time and distance. But if you're one year, two years, three years, and it's really easy to navigate different paths. And so that was just really helpful yeah. for me. And, and and just thinking, you know, if I look back, those are the choices that I happen to make. And I think like you, it doesn't, uh, I, w- I would make those same choices again, right? Like yeah. just, you know, in, in hindsight, it's, uh, it's just something that you know, I, w- I would have done and, and you would have done as well. Interesting. It's, it's a theme of Boston Speaks Up, I guess, in 2021 so far. We, Carly Chase was talking about this herself, about sort of the advantage, like there's almost an advantage in the sort of the 2000, like certain, certainly like the 2020s, the 20, you know, the roaring twenties we're going into now, like sort of like the innovation (laughs) curve is just always accelerating. And it seems much more likely than not that people will have many different jobs in the span of just a decade, Never mind, you know, 30 years. And she started actually like a coaching company called crab walk, which very Mm -hmm. specifically coaches people to be confident and comfortable and just like exploring and changing jobs and change or like changing the sort of types of functions that they perform at companies over time. Because when you were looking the rear view after a decade or after, after 20 years, you have like a much wider breadth of experience to draw upon as you, as you sort of navigate the next decade and kind of relating that back back to you and something you said before you mentioned sort of as a fellow operator in the background um because i would kind of consider myself that like you mentioned sort of yeah. you're you're now at a point where you're not necessarily like you're not just like attached to like this this one big like brand um you sort of you know in the background sort of like operator orchestrator um describe that like what what is you know what is what is your what is that role and what, what excites you about that? And, and, and how are you 
you know, you, you mentioned in the pre-podcast Q and a, like you've thought for years, like you want to just, it seems you want to reduce the friction between sort of, um, you know, mentors and sort of, you know, proven entrepreneurs, if you will, and sort of like, you know, the new first timers. So, you know, maybe you talk about it a bit through the lens of what you're doing at TBD angels, but just, you know, talk about that sort of like operating in the background, um, and, and you know, what, you know, what that means. And then also sort of like, you know, let, you know, lessons from that, that, that folks that are, that are listening can sort of draw upon. Yeah. I think one big learning for me was that at any given point in your career, that you're going to be either very deep or very broad. And unless you have a role that specifically is at the intersection of those two things, it's nearly impossible to both do both of those things well. And so in, in my case, the times you go deeper, when you're working with a team, you're building a startup, maybe you're full-time at a job. I mean, for me, in the last 20-some odd years, it's been when I've been part of a startup. And so that's, that's a, a one frame. And then the other frame are times where maybe like right now, uh, you get to touch upon a bunch of different things. And so that portfolio life, that how Diane describes it, is uh, it's just really different. And so that's essentially where where I am now. And part of the the desire was that being in the early stage tech scene, I've seen so much friction between just great ideas, great talent, great investors. And it's just so hard for people to find the people that they need to help grow their business, right? And and so while tools like LinkedIn and other sites exist, it's really difficult because it doesn't scale. And so I've just long been trying to figure out, is there a way to build up this like either network or a group or a service to reduce that friction? And I don't know what that is, but I just know that it's, it's something that is a, is a challenge out there. And so I think part of the reason why a handful of us pulled together our time at TBD Angels is that um, I think other similarly minded operators also felt the same thing. And so the quick backdrop is we created this angel group. Maybe it's more of a club might be a better way to describe it at the, um, hasn't even been a year. And so that the, I think April 1st, April Fool's Day was the first time that we actually pulled together this group. And, uh, and in less than a year, we've, we've grown the group from a dozen, uh, to two dozen angels to over 130 now. And, um, a lot of them are in the New England area, but they're all over the country. And, and I think one of the biggest benefits of this group is that the, there's, so, there is tons of connectivity within the membership. And so, um, we try to distribute that knowledge and that ownership as much as possible. And so we are probably the least, um, centralized group. And so you have these little clusters of, working groups that do different things within the broader club. And so people often ask like, you know, how does it work? And and there's some sort of organizational structure there really isn't. And so it's almost like, um, it's almost like open source, right? Where people are doing their own thing and they're contributing to the whole. And, and there's something really elegant and beautiful about that sort of way of operating that enables really good stuff to bubble up. And so I think it's very similar to just entrepreneurship in general. I love that. I like it. I love the open source concept. I, I've, and I've had a chance to, to, I've spent a little time with Jason Burke, who's sort of one of your, you know, partners, sort of cohort yeah, yeah, in yeah. TBD. Founding, founding member, yeah. and, and he does a ton of the work behind um, and everything, actually. He, he, yeah, in addition yeah. to building some homegrown tools and leading deals, 
uh, and making sure all the investments go through. Like there's, there's a big load that, that, that he, there's a load that he carries as, as part of that. And so, um, and so now it's been, it's been great working with him. Yeah. It's nice having a, a fellow sort of advisor, angel investor. I mean, I know, you know, Jason's been a, you know, he's, he's part of the, I think, it's the, I don't know if it's, it's the first time entrepreneur sort of mentor group at like underscore VC, but then he's also a product builder. And so like the, yeah. you mentioned, you referenced the tools, like the, mm-hmm. the very intentionally built, um, you know, tool that, that the TVD angels, uh, group is, is using to sort of just collaborate and discuss and kind of do code due diligence on things and, and, um, you know, make sure like all feedback is surfaced, like having personally participated in, much less, um, organized due diligence with, you know, VCs that I, that I work with from time to time. Um, I, I find what, what TBD angels is, is doing also on the, just the infrastructure and sort of tool set side of things to be, to be rather advanced. So I'm, I'm very excited, um, that the group is, is growing so quickly and, and, um, and I think now Jason told me this recently. I, I think during the pandemic, TBD's done is it like fifteen or eighteen deals? Like, like, can you speak a little yeah, bit good, to like the good, deals? Good memory. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Great, great memory. So in twenty twenty, we did eighteen investments, um, and so now we're a month or two in. I think we've added this another three or three or four. Mm-hmm. But in, in twenty twenty, it's just because it's easier to remember. Last year. We, we did these 18 investments, a couple of follow-ons, and of the 18 investments, eight were with women founder CEOs, and the fields were, um, we had multiple fields. It's so were industry agnostic. There was digital health, marketing tech, clean tech, fintech, um, e-commerce, or something in the job space. And so there's a ton of stuff that we've done around, around that. The typical investment is anywhere between, let's say, like 50K to 200K to the company, and we wrap it into a single a single check-in. So the founder is extremely founder-friendly because the one line item on the cap table. But then from the angel perspective, because we wrap all those checks into a single um, special purpose vehicle, people still opt in. And so they they opt in on a deal-by-deal basis. And so it's not a fund, right, where you are an LP, you put in a bunch of money and you have no discretion. So it's very much a, a group uh, process on that front. And and the big thing that we're trying to do also is just to reduce the iteration cycles to improving mm-hmm. stuff. And so whether it's the tools or the process, um, the way we grow membership, the reducing the amount of time that it takes to roll something out is is really, really key. Um, I used to work at TripAdvisor and um, one of the one of the mantras that Steve Coffer had on on his wall at TripAdvisor was speed wins. It was like a little sticky note that he, he had mm-hmm. out there. And, and that completely just resonates, especially in sort of tech. And my interpretation of that uh, many years later was that it's, it's speed, but it's actually the, it's not just speed for speed's sake, right? It's just not running in any random direction. It's, it's intentional. And so you want to go in a, you have a thesis and you, you move quickly on that thesis and you let things prove out in the market. And that's a lot of stuff that we're doing at TBD. But the number of iterations has to be really short. Right? The cycle has to be really short. Yeah, quick, smart, so fail the forward. The more you do that, yep. Yeah, it doesn't always it's have to be amazing. right. Yeah. Not precisely. Yeah, it's sorry. Sorry to jump on you there. Um, no, 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 no. That's, that's exactly right. One other, um, just thought. Of, I mean, just follow up on the you know 150, 200,000 sort of like on average sort of you know sort of 
investment that comes from TBD. Uh, I think Jason had mentioned to me that's, and that usually will, will encompass or involve around 13 or so angels. Is that, is that fair to say? And again, that's super founder friendly, right? You get one neat, clean sort of $150,000, $200,000 check and then, you know, 10, 12, 13, um, sort of angels attached to that, that have all these, that are sort of like with different expertise and the sort of like different levers to pull perhaps for different functions or, or different stages that startup will soon be in. That's what our founders have shared with us as one of the biggest benefits, right? Just having this group of supporters, that's not just a single person, especially over time, your needs change and having this group of smart people, like, you know, there's, they're just they're involved in all these different industries and, and have functional expertise that's also really different. So the the typical investment group as part of any particular deal is um, yeah generally around between twelve and let's say twenty right. And so yeah. there's like a bunch of people that jump in and as part of. I think we're working on one now, which I think we just crossed like the twenty four uh, angel mark, and we'll probably actually end up even a little higher than that. And so. It's um, it's a great group of people to bring mm. to a company, and the way that we work with the founders is like, here, here's in addition to the people that are financially backing you, there's this whole other group that obviously will want to help if they can be helpful. And so, I do think the founders have um, have leveraged and then see the benefit on in terms of working with us because of our backgrounds and expertise. Interesting. When when that that deal that you're going through now, you know, obviously like only sharing what you can, but like, what's the, mm-hmm. what's the theme? Is there a theme when you see like a deal go from, you know, 12 to 15 interested to like 20 plus, is it, is it in a particular market that's hot or one where just TBD's network just over indexes is sort of like with a lot of experts, like, like what's, is there any sort of, you know, trend to pull away from that? Yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty, pretty good question and it's pretty specific um like i think i know what you're digging at and yeah and i think part of the challenge and this is true for everywhere else is that there's there's momentum and velocity with deals and it's really hard to discount that and so what we've found is the typical cycle for an investment and this is probably true for most other groups as well that there's there's this like building up process where you garner support. And so it might be a couple different members or like, Hey, you know, I want to dig into this. Um, it could be one very connected member that knows that industry really well. And everyone mm-hmm. else is like, okay, well, she knows this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I, I'm, it's worth taking a look at. And so, um, we have found that when it comes to like that overall cycle, once it hits like this tipping point, then, the ball really gets rolling. And so for many of these in the very beginning, it's like just, there's so much, it's just so much stuff that's going out there. Right. And so it's really hard to get the attention. And then, um, and for the one that we're working on now, every additional person that jumps on just adds more weight to the ball that's rolling. And so it becomes really easy for some, uh, one of our investments to hit the tipping point and then sort of complete you know, roll downhill and everyone kind of jumps on it. And, and But until you get it up to that point of, of rolling by itself, it's uh, it's work, right? And right. the founders work for, for other folks. And we try to reduce the amount of work for founders. That's helpful. What, what What's next for TVD Angels? Like I have my sort of 
informed um, sort of guesses, I guess, from from spending time with with Jason and and some other folks that are in TBD and and just kind of being a bit of a student of sort of the evolving investor landscape. So I imagine, you know, maybe, you know, larger check sizes is an option, um, maybe, you know, bolstering the tool set and sort of, sort of man, you know, digital sort of like management, um, of, you know, angels against, you know, companies and, and being a bit more, you know, and just helping deliver more on the active investor sort of side of things. But, you know, in, in your, in your view, like what are the goals for this year? And then sort of like, what's like the five, like what's the five year sort of, you know, goals and, and some of the new, new things that, that, that you'd like to, to offer through a group like TBD angels, just to afford a lot of, you know, flexibility and sort of founder friendly um, opportunities to, to founders? I think that one's a hard one to answer primarily since we're this, um, I'll go back to the club terminology again, right? Cause it's, it's a club and part of us being in market is iterating and having all different members of the club iterate on that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just one of the, one of the members, right. And mm-hmm. so it's hard for me to project where this group will go. Um, so it can, you know, it, it be a lot of different directions. It could be, it evolves, it just gets bigger on its own. It's kind of like, you know, we'll just keep doing this, but just, you know, more of it, right? And that's that's pretty easy to see, which is just, um, you know, the logical conclusion. There's another path that's also uh, a path that's well-worn by other angel groups is like, you know, migration to a fund, right? That's like another path. There's another path that's around leveraging the fact that we have these smart connected people doing different things, right? And so there's, there may be something around that. And then there's a, technology one as well, right? Like yeah. there's some good tools. And so I, I honestly don't know which of those paths makes the most sense. And I think the beauty of what we're doing is that it's a, it's a great fertile test bed and, and um, place for, for different members to explore passions and things that they want to work on, things that they want to roll out. And so it's a way for many of those things to happen. So I actually just, yeah. I just don't know where, where the group will, will go, but, um, but I think that's part of the, part of the fun. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, there's a, it's sort of a very intentional, like large sort of hedge in, in several directions. And I imagine like as all sorts of different successes come out, like that will sort of indicate, um, you know, where to hit the repeat button or, or double click, if you will. Um, I'm curious too, like just kind of broadening out to just the Boston innovation ecosystem more broadly. Like we're still in the middle of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously we're finally administering more than a million vaccines a day, which is nice. I think we hit 1.7 million vaccines administered in a single day last week. So that's, that's a good sign. And, you know, it's, couldn't come soon enough, I think for, for folks to be able to, um, kind of get back out and, and, and figure out Absolutely. what, what, what normal will, will be sort of on the other side of this. Cause I think it, it will be a new kind of normal. And, but, but, but obviously, um, there's a lot of optimism in a, in a strong innovation economy like Boston's where like for me, I've really enjoyed, you know, some of the, you know, some of the venture capital firms I thought have done have been doing a really great job. I mentioned underscore VC. I think, 
that crew is doing a wonderful job sort of, you know, programming, um, content, um, with, you know, thought leaders and, and provide, you know, being a you know virtual resource to, to the community. I think what Christian Mogul and Venture Lane are doing is really impressive. And they've kind of, you know, I've had Christian on the podcast and, and I've, I've loved seeing him evolve. Like from, you know, he had a lot of like premium programming for his members only before the pandemic. And he's kind of sort of broadened, um, the aperture, if you will, and kind of exposed yeah. a lot of what they're doing to the community. And for, from your perspective, like where, you know, where, who are some of those like leading, you know, community members in the Boston innovation economy? Like who's, who's doing really well, um, in this sort of like virtual world we're in right now? Like, you know, have you joined any of the meetups on clubhouse? Like just generally, you know, just speak freely. I'm curious, like, you know, where would you point young entrepreneurs listening to like, Hey, like take a look at what these guys are doing. Like, this is a good resource. Like, this is a great, this is a great resource. Like, what are you, you know, what are you experiencing? And, 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 um, you know, any, any particular sort of, you know, stories or, or things coming up, perhaps speaking engagements that, that folks should be aware of. My, my lens is very um, tinted, right? I, I spend a ton of time with student entrepreneurs. And so I probably have a very, very limited view in terms of just all of the other things that are happening. And so I do think one of the biggest exciting things about the Boston area are all the schools, obviously, right? And that, 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 you know, no one can knock the amount of smart, the number of smart people that come through uh, Boston every single year. And so most of what I see and what I'm focused on is very uh, specific to that. And so I do think that you know, as education reinvents itself, you know, because that's just you know, much like, much like healthcare, like both education and healthcare, these are two areas where if we can make it, dent on that, like what an impact that we have on this planet, right? Like we're on this on the planet for a limited amount of time. And so if you can make people healthier or make um, education more broadly accessible, those are things worth solving. And so in, in, in the, on the education side, just being able to, to find the, the next new thing and encourage someone who's young and 18 to connect with like the other the other smart people that can help them along. Like it's just so, so much of my focus. And so I think, you know, to your, your, your question of, of like, you know, where to point folks, um, because my lens is so limited on that front that I'm so focused on that side. It, it's hard for me to, to comment on that, but, um, but I think anything that we can do to break down some of the knowledge barriers between different yeah. schools, break down some of the, this, um, insular circles, right? Like I, I a couple of years back, I talked to, um, talked to a founder that had moved to Boston for school, stayed here. And then they were, they were talking about how hard it was to crack into certain circles. And, and they shared with me that they didn't think Boston was particularly well, welcoming. And that kind of blew me away. And I guess it shouldn't have, but they blew me away because I, I thought that at least the folks that were, we were I think, out at dinner or out at a bar or something. And I just thought the folks that were, there were extremely open and hadn't kind of realized that these circles are so so tight knit and um, and the one thing that maybe really kind of drew it home for me was that I realized that even 
even among people that you think know each other, they may not necessarily know each other, that many of these networks are kind of horizontal and I guess horizontal by, by age. And so what struck home for me was that there was another person who was in Boston Tech, worked for, I think, uh, Zakamai or some software company. And um, turns out he and I only have one common connection on LinkedIn. And it turns out it was like we both worked for the same person, like, you know, a couple of years back. And so it just seems shocking that someone who, I think he actually went to Cornell as well. And so like we went to the same school, we lived in the same place, in the same industry, and we only knew one person in common. It turns out it was only because he was 40 years younger than me. And so his network was very horizontal, and so was mine. And so if you could find ways to to break through that and, and, and connect the different tiers, I think there's so much that can be unlocked, right? Like um, for me, it's, it's unselfish when working with, with student founders because... I learned so much and there, you know, whether it's a new tool or a new way of thinking about something, there's so much more plugged in. Um, and hopefully I can be helpful as well. And so I just, so much yeah. of that is like at that level. And so I, I you know, completely didn't answer your question of like, no, you did, go, but like, that's my, my thinking about the uh, founders in that sense. Like it just, that's, I think part of the reason why I'm so fired up about, um, about Boston Tech. Well, it's interesting. You answered my question at like a level, like as if you and I have, jammed four or five times because you know we can like i kind of already it was a leading question and celebrating you know there's some great community leaders that are programming good content during the pandemic fine i mean i actually what i'm spending some time on in the background and the limited time i have is actually spending time with schools and first-time founders myself like even today at oh, great. Four, four eastern i'm i'm an entrepreneur in residence at endicott you know i moved to beverly mm. i'm a big fan of like local community and like, you know, the smallest movements can have the biggest impact. And so one of the things I did early on moving here was I, I saw the angle center for entrepreneurship at Endicott. I identified Deirdre Sartorelli as, as an operator who had moved in as sort of like the assistant Dean, sort of like sort of chief head of like Endicott sort of, um, you know, moved to be almost sort of like a Babson of the North shore. And I, I was very interested oh, really cool. and, and I walked in there one day and just like, found Deirdre and we got to know each other and we eventually did a podcast together. And a couple years later, you know, here I am EIR and working with first time founders. And it's, it's just something I'm super passionate about. I think it's one of the several reasons why Jason Burke wanted to connect you and I, you know, one of the things that I talk to Endicott about all the time, and, and I know that they're certainly willing to be happy that I'm, I'm like disclosing this like, to the world is uh -huh. it's, it's the, the barriers need to need to be broken down in some ways they are like, there's, there's really like, you know, Larry Gennari, someone I've had on the podcast um, from Gennari Aronson. He has, he, before the pandemic did these lovely like monthly dinners where he'd bring people from all these sort of disparate pockets. And so I like, keep bring like the Deirdre Sartorelli from Babson would be there, but like, and the, but like one of the next ones, I was like, Oh, we need to get, like, I wanted to have just a school one where it's like, I want to have mm -hmm. someone from like MIT and, totally and, Endicott, and then like UMass Amherst and, you know, cause it's, for me, like, and, and if you're now going to go off on a tangent for, for a little bit, but are you familiar with like the multi-channel network concept and like online video, like YouTube land? It, it's essentially uh, like, like full screen, um, maker studio. Oh, right, right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So yep. You know, when you think of like how those, those networks started, it was like, it, like I can apply that to Boston tech and I'm a, I'm a media sort of tech innovation guy. And so like, I think there's a lot of interesting ways to apply that mindset to like 
Boston in particular, because we're not the great at greatest at media innovation. And sort of what you do is you go to like like-minded parties and with the backdrop and understanding that like a rising tide only lifts all boats, you create like a, a, some sort of alliance or coalition and you like represent that digitally where all of the disparate, you know, small, you know, independent, you know, nodes of, of sort of knowledge sharing and, and, and education kind of like, you know, window, if you will, or just surface Mm -hmm. and like, in one sort of central place, like, like, you know, share the breadth of their content, open source it, if you will, like in an MITx kind of way, you know, in ways like, you know, you know, Stanford's doing on the, on the West coast, making a lot of their classes available for free on iTunes U. Um, and, and so there's just, for me, you know, the education, higher education, um, institutions really need to do this, like, because that disruption will just come from, you know, it, it, it's starting to come from private sector. You know, I have a friend who just, who just took over, um, to just took a job at masterclass and the long-term plans for masterclass are going to edge into like the education world a lot too. And so making, you know, all of the different, you know, pockets of, of education of sort of like innovation, um, oriented or, or startup entrepreneurship oriented education, just in the Commonwealth, just in Massachusetts, um, connecting them and, and making that not just available to the students in those schools. So a student at Endicott, like my, you know, like part of the plans you're starting to see, like, look at Endicott's Twitter, like look at some of the program they're doing. They're like, they're celebrating what Carly Chase and MIT are doing, right? It's like celebrate each other, share each other. Like that's the multi-channel network concept. Like that's, if you've, you know, you've seen models in media land, like the influence, uh, Oliver Luckett founded it. And it was like early influencer marketing days, like, you know, bunch of like-minded in Instagram influencers, like, Hey, let's all share each other's content, you know, and, and, and help lift each other up and, and expose people to a, a wider breadth of inspiring people on the topic of, you know, DIY home improvement, whatever. Like it's, it's a very proven model in, in media land that I think could be really interesting. And I think all these schools need to think like, I think any modern brand needs to think like a media publisher, And if, and then thinking like a media publisher and kind of taking a network approach to it, like you're a publisher and you're just one channel on a broader network. And so I'm really interested in seeing like who could lead the charge to kind of like taking that like broad horizontal network approach and like go get folks to sign up for that coalition, that alliance. And then, you know, Endicott's got a channel. MIT's got a channel. Babson's got a channel. Bentley's got a channel and Suffolk's got a channel and Boston university's got a channel. And like, and, and then think about, you know, 10 years from now, you should be producing that video content, you know, and all those channels I'm literally speaking in terms of TV, it is almost falling down simple. And there's someone in your TBD angels group, Frank Sinton, who has this technology to take that video content and just put it up on the television. You can, you can launch it on a Vizio right now and people who are cutting the cord and just enjoying like watch free and getting, you know, TV out, you know, essentially streaming cable TV out of the box. Like all of a sudden you can, you can, you can point entrepreneurs or you can, you can start targeting people in communities that maybe haven't been able to have that higher education and say, Hey, this is check out the free ad supported, um, 
you know, Massachusetts Education Alliance channel. It's going to have to come up with a sexier name than that. And then, <laughs> and then within the network, and then within that network, it's a universe of 65 different channels of content from the leading educators of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Like, so um, I hear that, you. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm stop. I'm stop with the tangent now. But that's just like one of the. That's where my mind oftentimes goes, and I'm so glad that you. You stoked my fire, like, because I couldn't agree more. Like there needs to be just more like collaboration across universities and, and ultimately then like really, really modern distribution and intentional distribution to certainly existing students, but also folks that maybe don't know or don't believe that they could gain access to that education. And, and I think from there you can pull more people into the innovation economy and sort of the future, you know, jobs and careers that are going to only continue to, um, take over as that innovation curve continues to accelerate. Yeah. It's a wonderful way to break down the silos and get, get critical mass, right. And whether it's content or people to, get some sort of like escape velocity on that. And so I, I, I love it. Nice. That will be one of our, uh, will be one of our projects together. Cause maybe you could, maybe you can help me. That's a follow up. Inspire people. There you go. There's one of our follow ups. Yeah. Uh, Making connections. There it is. There it is. Jason did, did, did introduce us as, as two of Boston's great connectors. So we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to find ways to, to sort of collaborate and, and put that, put that, that skill to use. Sounds like a plan. So, so David, I, I know we're, and I, I know we checked before we're going to run, run a little longer. Um, I had a few other questions I wanted to ask, but, but I do, I also want to make sure like, what, like, what are some of the things, you know, when you think of, um, when you think of some of like advising startups and, and being founder friendly and, and help in helping, you know, as many, you know, you know, entrepreneurs as possible. Um, you obviously therefore get a lot of insight into sort of like, you know, common, common mistakes and, and just like, you know, general best practices. Like, can you just speak freely on like some of the sort of, you know, you know, challenges, you know, common, you know, common, common mistakes you see and just to give, you know, give some of your advice to listeners, a lot, our, our listeners range, but we have a lot of younger, you know, budding, aspiring entrepreneurs. And so what, what's some of the, what's some of the advice that you like to give to first time founders? Um, and I, and I know one of the things that you hit on just to tease it out from the pre pre podcast Q and a sort of, which I love, and I too consistently advocate for a very narrow, um, focus and not trying to like you know, scorch the earth and, and, yep. and, and tackle every problem for everyone, but, but tackle like one problem for one group really well and, and sort of like, you know, plot out your growth from there. Um, so maybe you start there, but I'm just curious, like, what are your top lessons for in particular first time founders? I have a handful that I, um, personally made a mistake. And so I um, actually have some material that I've pulled together that I've shared with other folks before. And so those are just burned in my my memory because I've made those mistakes. And then through the startups that I've worked with and then the founders that I've invested in have also seen some patterns. And so the, the focus is definitely one. Uh, on, on my side, 
we were, this is a couple years back, but we were developing a mobile photo sharing service and we went back and forth between like two primary guardrails. And so one was the use case of I'm going to post something publicly and share with the world. Like right? anyone discover it, this is right around, it's actually just before Instagram. So it was right around that time. And then the other guardrail was I'm going to share something uh, It's private, like, you know, photo of my daughter with my mom kind of thing. And so the problem that we had was that we went back and forth between these two wildly different use cases. And as you may imagine, the feature sets for those two things are completely different. And so with a 12-person company, you can't build both of those things and do it well. And so every couple of weeks went back and forth on this. And, and as a result, we did neither well and, and you know, we pretty much couldn't figure out how to how to get focused on something. And so that's definitely one. And the more narrow that you can make your aperture of like what you're focused on, the more of a likelihood that you can hit that target. And so I think a lot of the founders that I work with today are concerned about making it too narrow because they think it's going to be too small. But um, I think it's just generally observed that if you can serve that really well, then you can add other stuff onto it. And, and maybe the narrative that works well for, for founders is they picture where they want to be in you know, five years, 10 years, whatever, like this ultimate big, big vision. The, if you're climbing this mountain, it's this big summit that it's really important for you to like hone in on like where you are now and what's the, what's the path up the mountain. And so if you're at base camp, you just got to figure out how to get the, Camp one, right? Like a mm-hmm. thousand feet up, not five thousand feet up, and and just articulating those two things is just really important for a lot of different reasons. But maybe the main one is it gives you a sense of like how to get there, and you're going to pivot, you're going to take different, you're going to take the north south, uh, north route, south route. Like those things will will change over time. But but being focused on like that next achievable goal and just iterating really quickly to get there. Um, is something that is absolutely a, a, a lesson, and, and you know, unless you've made that mistake a handful of times, it's it's hard to absorb that lesson. Yeah, well said. The, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but one thought that just came to mind is like the well, the idea we were chatting earlier, like in, you know, we were talking about Carly Chase kind of speaking to this too. But you, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like you and I agree that it's it's almost an advantage to take a nonlinear career path. So I think from a career yeah. path standpoint, nonlinear path, different different types of jobs, different size companies, different functions, roles at those jobs is really good. And so like if you were mapping that out, you know, from you know south to north, like it, it would be like the dots would just be like you know, left, right, up, down, over. And, it, and you're not necessarily like, you know, focused on like you're not on a linear path, but, but, but with a, in any of those particular roles and let's say like, let's just treat those roles as like, you know, roles at, you know, startups, there should be very clear sort of linear path, like a North star sort of like aspirational sort of, you know, end point, you know, call it like the exit strategy and sort of like the key, you know, steps or achievements along the path that you've identified must be, um, met in order to, you know, get to the next step towards the, the most aspirational goal. And so in, in that case, it's, it's, a, it's, it's much more, you know, rigid and linear with the understanding that 
there's all these rules around, you know, there's pivots that need to happen or, you know, the brand can fork if X happens and Y, and it's not as simple as saying your career can be nonlinear and a startup should be linear. But I do think, and I'm curious, like, would you agree? Like, it's great to have that sort of breadth of experience in a nonlinear career, but when it comes to building a startup, like have a really focus, focused and sort of disciplined, um, in uh, I would call like you know, linear, you know, plan of attack to sort of like very clearly and deliberately executing because you also then need to you need to communicate to your growing team a very clear, you know, the del- you know, deliberate path that you'll be executing in, in, in order to sort of succeed. I you know I have never really thought about that analogy between those two, but I think there is there is something to that. And in startup land, the visual that I was using was going up a mountain, right? So right. Kind of go up and then the path of change. And on the career one, it was a different one, which was the concentric circles one where you kind of end up someplace. But I do think your, your, your statement is right. And so if I kind of step back a little bit and see where those common pieces are in the startup world, it's, uh, experimenting in the near term and being really focused on just, you know, hitting that next milestone, right? And so that's going to be a certain path. And then you reassess when you hit phase camp one, camp one, camp two, camp three kind of thing. And then yeah. on the career side, I do, you know, I hadn't thought about it until now, but it is, I guess it is the same thing. If you know you where you want to be. Now the difference is not everyone, including myself, knows Right. where they want to be. So it's really hard to do that. Like if you're curing cancer or the company, then you, you know, you got a goal in mind and that tends to be broader than yourself. But yeah. for careers and a nonlinear career path, like these circles and the reason why it's the circles, you don't know whether or not you want to end up on the circle that, you know, the, the ring of the circle in 20 years, is it um, in one field or is it some another field? Is it one function or another function? And so you have to, that's the reason why it's nonlinear, but um but I do often ask people when it comes to the career side of things to um, to just like, you know, what do you want to be? Like, describe your dream thing or dream role in like five years. Great. Um, how come you can't do it tomorrow? And there's usually like one or two things that like, well, I either don't have the skill. I don't have this, um, have this experience. I don't know these people. And so the task there is to try to iterate quickly and front load some of that. So that's like, okay, great. Let's try to get you the thing that you don't have, but let's shorten the time frame. And so, can you do it in four years? Can you do it in three years? And so that just brings forward and moves front some of those unknowns. But I do think um, I do think there is something to that analogy where it can be it can be the case. And, um, and I guess the only difference is the uh, when you look back upon a career, like you take all these different changes in direction and every decision. You know, as you and I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, we we make the same decisions, but like in a in a in the bizarre world, someone else made the opposite choice. And <laughs> yeah, in and it'll actually be just fine. And I know this is a little bit sort of optimistic or kind of rosy, but I <laughs> a couple of years back I had met him uh, um, near Jar Arzawal over at uh, Battery Ventures, and um, I hadn't met him for a long time. I hadn't met him before, and so we were talking a little bit about our backgrounds. And it turns out that. Um, we share some common elements and we both grew up in New York. I think we both came to the same schools and all that good stuff. But in every juncture where I made one decision in his career, he made the other decision. So mm. I think he joined a startup when I went to like a bank, he did investing, when I did something else. And so it was like four or five sequences of, of forks in the road. And he, he took the other one in, in each of those cases. And 
And I guess if you look back, we're like, we're both fine where we are, right? Yeah. It's just, it's just, um, yeah, I don't know if I had a point to that, but it was just very eye-opening for me. And, um, and so hopefully that'll, that'll help with, with others. That was insightful. Also, you helped me fulfill the daily obligation of a Seinfeld reference um, with, the, <laughs> with the Bizarro World comment. And yeah, I'm sure, I mean, you know, we've got a George. Um, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure Bizarro World, George and Jerry and Kramer and Elaine um, all were just all were just fine too. Um, yeah, but I, I, I couldn't help myself. I, I swear, like the 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 um, percentage of days in my life where where Seinfeld comes up still is just it's remarkable. That that show stands the test of time. Um, I, I have uh, I have like a couple more questions for you. One is around, and we'll, I'm going to kind of help just build. You know, make sure we build this into a nice grid in the written um, in the written piece that we'll get up on on the business journal Boston O site. Um, but you did a really good job of outlining sort of the, the Boston ecosystem over the next decade and sort of, um, X, Y axis is sort of like you got talent, capital and ecosystem. And then that talent, capital and ecosystem is sort of, you know, impacted by, you know, different players at early stage and then later stage. And I know like at Silicon Valley bank would put it, um, shout out to our sponsor, you know, Silicon Valley bank would say sort of like from inception to series a, um, yeah. anything pre series a is early stage. And then sort of post series a, like that's sort of like they're, when they're, you know, they're frontier tech groups and they have, they break out into sort of more specialty groups around, around clusters of markets. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, like where do we, where does Boston over index? And then maybe more importantly, like what, what elements do you feel we need to bolster to support at either early or later stage? And it sounds like you and I are probably a little more focused on really making sure that the early stage first time founder sort of student founder sure. folks are really supported. But where do you feel like, um, you know, there, there's, there's big room for improvement. And then also like, you know, where do you, you know, overall, like, you know, what, you know, what, what do you think the strengths of Boston are? Yeah, I think that there's these three ingredients that are critical for any like hub, right? Talent, the capital, and maybe the glue that connects it all. And on the on the capital, uh, sorry, on the talent side, it ranges from the influx of students, you know, a couple hundred thousand every year, to first time founders, to startup veterans, to to pillar company corporate exec types, right? And so it takes an entire range of talent to make something work. And so we've got lots of that. Um, on the capital side, it goes from the first couple of checks from angels to the big, uh, you know, big growth equity rounds, right? And so there's a, there's a range of that as well. And, and there's a, a decent history on that front. And then the ecosystem part, I think, is, has grown um, quite a bit, you know, whether it's, it's the accelerators of the world or the schools, uh, you know, other organizations. And so there's a lot of the good stuff that's brewing here. I think the challenge has been that um, there's, feels like at any given time there's an imbalance, right? And so over I don't know, over forty years, right, like there's been leadership from the valley on lots of different fronts and, and I don't think you can compare the sheer like scale. Right. Just like there's just a lot more activity there. And and when you have a lot of activity, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of ways that things can um, move forward. And so we we obviously don't have that size and, and scale. But I do think given the fact that we are much more tight knit, these clusters of strengths, whether it's like the, 
you know, web sciences and education and like mobile's one. Um, Jeff Buskang over at Flybridge does this annual talk with, um, with HBS students. It's, that's great. That just highlights these clusters. I think he calls them micro clusters of, of strength. And in any one of those clusters, you see there's like a lot of good stuff that's happening there. And so I think what would be key for Boston is to you know, compete where we've got some decent competence and decent muscle around that. And so, you know, in my world, Looking at education, obviously, is a big focus, as, as we talk about. And um, and there's just like other, you know, whether it's digital health or like one of these other clusters, that I think the best thing to do is to to build upon the ingredients just within that vertical, within that cluster. And and then you'll have that cycle going, right? Like if the first time founder, they build a company, they sell the company, then they become, you know, the acquirer in that, in that, in that vertical. And it's, it is self-fulfilling. And so I do think that we have to take some time to to make sure all, all those ingredients are in balance and that's just something that you know hopefully um, we'll, we'll all do together that's that's great and also reaffirming for the focus of um fabric media sort of my company and sort of our how we're focus focusing our energy in boston which is more around more there's different hats we wear um as you know, angel investors and growth agents and marketers and publicists, but, but we're, we also sort of own an operating analyst firm and we're sort of, we're working with a lot of the, I call them because I think Boston also just like does, doesn't have the high, you know, the best um, or highest degree of media coverage sort of nationally and internationally as, as other sort of comparable tech markets. And, and so, but what we've done is to sort of take like a analyst production approach and kind of really focus more about analyst production and distribution efforts on Boston. And we just put out like a robotics report and to use your word, and it's a word I, I think I've also used in this call, but like sort of the clusters and like the clusters and sort of mini clusters and subclusters. like the robotics report wasn't a grand robotics report in that it focused on the subsector of robotics, microlocation robotics of which, Boston has a sea of companies across, you know, let's say, four different, dis- distinctly different technology categories. Where in any of those buckets, companies from Boston are the driving force behind global micro ro- micro location robotics innovation. And you can then shift and pivot to, you know, healthcare, biotech, climate tech. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned robotics, right? That's another, yeah, these are all, all yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And you'll, you'll probably recognize the name Galen Moore, you know, former, you know, OG Boston sure. tech analyst from mass high tech, right. When they used to send out mass high tech to folks in the mail and he went on to be editor in chief of American Inno and when, you know, Chase Gar- Garbarino and, and those, and those, and, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Greg Gomer sold Boston to, the, to um, American city, business journals and Galen was like the editor in chief, obviously of all of American to know, but was more like the Boston guy. And then he went and founded token report and sold token report. And like, I like to, you know, say that folks like Galen or, and, and Dan Rowinski, who was, you know, one of the leading mobile tech writers in the world, you know, for a certain period of time when he was at read, write web, uh, they're all like on the bench in Boston. And so we, you know, we're working with, with, you know, Galen's kind of our chief, you know, my kind of co-executive producer on these reports and robotics is done. And the next one will be cybersecurity. And we keep talking to 
um, you know, we have a good feedback loop with the venture community as to like what these clusters should be that we focus on, but it's very much like focusing on these clusters and subclusters and, you know, helping find and identify the folks that are, you know, advising, investing, basically growth agents around those clusters too. So there's a bit of like business development and like networking opportunity around the production reports. And then obviously reports like are yielding coverage and tech crunch, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, just kind of playing out to you, like, um, perhaps a bit, bit of a shameless self-promotion of like what, what we're up to here, but that's sort of, yeah, like, and, and it's like, all right, well, publisher economics aren't great. And I'm very familiar with that. And, you know, like there's this, anal, you know, there's an analyst production sort of economic model that we've proven out in sort of TV land. And that's again, how I know Jason Burke, like through a lot of the work we do with TV rev, which is our analyst firm. And, and so we're just, you know, it's, we're applying that to Boston and what you just kind of stoked, you just stoked a bit more of my fire around the, these sort of like business development, sort of like, um, additional value and service that can be sort of afforded to budding entrepreneurs in those subclusters around these efforts, I think is something that I want to make sure that we're very intentionally focused on. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really do. I, I love, I love that. I love that answer. And this is perhaps, um, another area where we'll have to kind of collaborate offline as a follow-up and uh, you know, love to get your, your input on some of these next clusters that we plan on, um, digging a little deeper on. Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah hell yeah. It. Hell yeah. Um, so we got to, we we're coming up on time. Um, and by the way, my, my wife informs me school, early school pickup today. It looks like we're getting another five to seven inches. So plan, plan for that, David, if you need to, um, good old new England. Yeah. It's, it's, you knew we weren't going to just cruise to another winter without some snow. So it's, it's fine. I think it's bring it on. Yeah. Let's, let's bring it on. I happily build a snowman with, with my three and a half year old this week. Um, David, this has been, this has been wonderful. I, I really, I really appreciate the time. I'm looking forward to sharing this, this conversation with the, with the community. Um, just for like la last question and like, what are, what's a good way for folks to, you know, to follow you or, or potentially get connected with you? Like, you know, do you have like preferred, um, you know, you know social media that, that you like, like to use and, and just, you know, and, and do you have any, you know, upcoming, you know, speaking engagements or, or, you know, what are just good ways for, for folks to kind of follow along the, the Changer journey? Uh, <laughs> I maybe I'll have to, I'll have to slap that on, on a, on a banner or something, but, um, that <laughs> uh, best way is probably, uh, Twitter in terms of just open social media these days. I'm sure like everyone else, the fragmentation of all the types of messaging, which is really hard to, um, hard to handle. And so I, I just, I can't keep track between, email and LinkedIn inbox. I think it's like three different ways people can reach you even within LinkedIn and then yeah. WhatsApps and, and all that. And so, um, Twitter is probably the best way if, um, if we're not already connected, uh, otherwise if we already connected, you know, just send me an email. That's, um, that's the best thing. I tend to try to share what I'm, um, you know, any, any, whether it's an event or some content that's generated and, uh, I tend to post stuff to my website. So it's, um, davidchang.me. Um, and so that's probably a good place to, um, 
to get my contact details. And so, you know, short, short of that, it's been fabulous chatting with you. Um, it's uh, interesting. We haven't met live, but it feels like we, we, there's a lot of stuff that we should be doing together live. And so really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you today. Wonderful. The feeling is mutual and, uh, sounds like we're maybe due to, to catch up for a coffee, maybe this spring, summer, when, uh, even with the pandemic, maybe roaring a little bit, we can do it safely, safe, safely outside when it warms up. Let's do it. Let's do it. David Chang. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day and, and have a great week. You too. Thanks, Zach. And, uh, and make sure you stay warm with the snow out there today. Will do. You do as well. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.